Are we being kept in a cycle of ill health perpetuated by big food and big pharma? To explore this important question and more, today I'm joined by Eric Edmeads, who is one of the true pioneers of the coming food revolution. Eric is passionate about helping human beings to achieve and experience outstanding health. And having lodged over 10,000 hours on stage and spoken at over 20 different countries around the world, Eric is recognized widely as one of the most powerful, engaging, and entertaining speakers in the world today. Through this multifaceted conversation on the Elevate podcast, based upon Eric's research and experience in the fields of health, evolutionary biology, and human psychology, we explore a range of topics from the impact of the pandemic over the last couple of years to the cultural and physical frailties that we are witnessing within society today, and how, importantly, we can go about creating a food revolution to reclaim our health freedom, including how we can master our own psychology so that we can break free of the cycle of ill health perpetuated by big food and big pharma. This will be an inspiring conversation that I hope will make you want to achieve vibrant health and take full responsibility for your own self-care as passionately as Eric does, as you'll see within this interview. Now, if you uh, enjoy this conversation, we have big news. Eric will be joining us inside the Elevate Network for a private Q&A discussion. So uh, if you're watching this ahead of the 6th of July, Wednesday, the 6th of July, you can go ahead and register at weareelevate.org. Join as a member and uh, join our supporter circle where you'll find our event listings and, and register for Eric's uh, Q&A session with us. If you can't make the date, don't worry, it will be recorded. So go ahead and join weareelevate.org and you can access the replay. Plus, uh, enjoy the uh, engaging discussion within our private online community. Eric, here we are, two years on. It's great to have you back on the Elevate podcast. Last time we were together was uh, the beginning of April 2020 uh, at the onset of the pandemic, really. And uh, both of you and I actually followed similar paths in the fact that we both created projects to keep people engaged, motivated, uplifted uh, at those early stages of the pandemic and the lockdowns. Uh, And here we are two years on. Um, Situation is still unfolding. Uh, I'd be interested to kick us off by... You know, getting your take on the last couple of years. You know what, what's what's been happening. You know, your, your your view on the last couple of years since we last spoke. You know, it's it's, it's since April 2020. We're now uh, in, in recording this today in May, so it's almost exactly two years since we spoke, and and a lot's happened. Yeah, it it, it really has been an interesting time, and I think there are two really great um, there are two really great filters to look at it through. There's the personal filter, and that is like what the experience of this has been um, for, for us personally, you know, for individual people. And, you know, obviously we're aware for some people it's been absolutely devastating. And we know for other people it's been like uh, rocket fuel and, and projected them into another direction. And so I think there's a really um, interesting conversation to be had about how we handle adversity on an individual basis. Why is it that some people were, have been really devastated by what's gone on, quite aside from getting sick or now just talking life conditioning? And then why is it other people have gone from strength to strength to strength through that time? And I think that's fascinating. I've been watching it happen all around me. But then I think there's a larger conversation, and that is uh, what's going on with um, industry and government? What, what's going on you know, w- with the chess masters that are playing the game around us? 
And normally I'm pretty ambivalent about that stuff. I, I just, I understand that the, the, the government is more than we can deal with and, the, and the, the large companies are more than we can fight. And the best thing for us to do is to focus on our lives and live the best possible lives we have. But I think we've seen over the last two years that we, we really do need to pay attention to what's going on with government industry because it's scary sometimes. Well, agreed. And, and actually, the direction of this show since we relaunched it is focused on those those kind of paradigms of both the individual and, and what the individual can do to elevate their own consciousness and their and their, their, their role that they play in creating change in their own lives and in the world around them, but also looking at social, political, economic change and how we can examine those areas as well. So we're really trying to marry the two together in terms of the conversation. So it's a really good kickoff point. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, both parts are interesting to, to pick up on. And your, your point, actually, we've discussed this notion of cultural fragility um, uh, that, that we're witnessing. And um, I think there was a video that you shared, actually, which showed it depicted uh, how, how fragility has changed over the decades. And it, it was it was a, it was a humorous take on it. You know, it looked like a punk rocker in the seventies, bumping into things and taking it with real swagger through to almost the kind of Ronaldo-like dive in the penalty box, rolling around, writhing in pain from the same, you know, knock on the shoulder. And whilst it was a satirical take, in many ways it is a reflection of how fragile we've become in, uh, as a society. Uh, and that's yeah. physically, mentally, emotionally. Uh, so it'd be interesting to, to unpack that a little bit in, uh, as we kick off. And, you know, from the work that you've done across multiple dimensions, from health to personal development and business, What's your take on why why we've lost lost some of that resilience? Um, you know, it's funny. We see actors these days that come out and you know wax lyrical about their life philosophies. And I used to be very critical of that. I'd see somebody like Jim Carrey, you know, offering some grand wisdom about the larger life that that we should all be living in. And um, and then over the last I don't know eight or nine years of my life, I've begun to understand why they do that. And that is that. Um, they have seen something that most people will never see. They have seen what life um, is like when you have everything you want. Mm. They've seen what life is like with no adversity. They've seen what life is like when you, you know, when you can't simply make yourself happy by buying something because you have everything you want. And so they have come up against something that the average person won't really face in their lifetime. And that is the truth about the fact that happiness is an inside job, the truth about the fact that happiness is your own direct personal, personal responsibility. So most people are sitting, you know, and when they have a happiness dip or they have a sadness, a prolonged sadness, or they go into a depression, there's a, there, there's a little part of them that says, well, I can turn to this new car. I can buy my, you know, my, the latest iPhone. I, I, I can go on a vacation. I, those things and the hope of them in the future stimulates a feeling of happiness. But then what happens when you have everything and you wake up unhappy? And, 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 and so speaking of actors, I saw, I think it was Morgan Freeman. And he said, it was really poignant. He just said, look, you know, when you pray to God, you know, if that's your source, if you pray to God and you pray for strength, don't think for a minute that God just makes you strong. God gives you things to strengthen you. Mm. And, and, you know, I think there's something really powerful in that. So one of the reasons that I think the pandemic has been more difficult for many people than it had to be is that we've lived through the easiest times in the history of humanity. And so we are probably among the weakest people to have ever lived. And that may sound really harsh, but I, I was thinking about it in this context is that, um, you know, I'm 52 years old. So I've lived through the, what I believe to be the gentlest time in the history of humanity. But if I had been born in 1900, 
By the time I was 18 years old, I'd have been fighting in the trenches in World War I. By the time I got to my 30s, I'd be going through, oh, and, and by the way, I would have survived the Spanish flu. And then, on, then I got to the Great Depression and I had to live through that crap. Then as I've just picked up my socks 10 years after the Great Depression, I'm a veteran, so they draft me in for World War II. I'm fighting in World War II. And then at 50, I'm staring down the, the, the destruction of the world and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there was a million other things in that window where we've lived through a time where the, the, the toughest wars we've had to deal with have been the war on terror and the war on drugs, both of which were fought thousands and thousands of miles away from us on television screens. And so now we face this type of thing. And we just don't have the muscles. We, we, as a population, we just don't have the strength. I'm not talking about every individual. I'm saying across the population, the average person is not as strong as they maybe need to be. Yes. I mean, it's interesting uh, speaking in terms of those kind of wars that we've kind of been Arm, armchair recipients you know we've the co conflict in ukraine is another example and in fact the war that we engage in is the culture wars and that that to me i think is also a reflection of the fragility i think yeah. uh um and how that's playing out because i think there's a to me i see a gap between individuals and their connection to their self-esteem and uh that 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 those challenges that, that that i think have become less and less prominent in in society um, that, that give us that opportunity to grow. I really liked your analogy there, that the way you, you, you made that point around how we need those challenges in order to give us strength. And um, as you know, I have been very critical of what's happened over the last couple of years. And the, the day I had to make the decision to whether I was actually going to use my platform to, to address some of those things that I, I thought were unjust, uh, I had I had that conversation with myself. I said, this is going to be challenging. You're going to get a lot of pushback. You're going to get yeah. a lot of abuse. And I just made peace with that, knowing that that was to come. But but I just wonder if we've created a, a culture where we now silence ourselves. We sit back. I mean, within that kind of domain of the culture that we're swimming in. Do you know, it, it, I really thought that I wasn't like that. I really thought that I was doing my, you know, doing my thing out there and fighting the good fight and what have you. But it's funny, in our pre-show little chat here, you were mentioning you were watching some of the stuff I was writing on Twitter. And I, I joked with you. I was like, well, when on Instagram, I'm, I'm quite a nice person, but on Twitter, I say it like it is. And the truth is that has a lot to do with the way those platforms and the way the viewers on those platforms respond to things. So like I, I, I when I uploaded, um, you sent me the voicemail this morning, reminded me I did that video, your last line of defense back in whatever it was, February or March of 2020. Um, when I uploaded that video, I received more hate mail from that video than every other thing that I've done combined. And all that video said was, hey, look, all these other measures, do them, do them. And, and yes, vaccines will come along and do that. I was pro, pro, just take the measures and take care of your health because your health has an impact. And I had all these people attacking me about that, which of course then, you know, you can say, like, I feel like I've got a relatively thick skin, but the truth of the matter is when you have all these people screaming at you with vitriol across social media, it, I can't pretend it doesn't get through. So then of course that becomes its own form of strange, you know, bullying censorship. And the next thing you know, we're not quite as willing to say what we really want to say. And I, you know, here's, here's a funny thing about like, for example, masks, the, the ever controversy of do they work and should they work? And, and if you don't wear one, are you killing the other people? And if you do wear one, are you a wimp and all this kind of stuff. Right. But here's one interesting thing, not, not talking about what side anybody's on, just talking purely about the feeling of society. 
the feeling of society was that the vast majority of people were in favor of mask mandates. That's the feeling that I was getting across Canada, the United States, Britain, and other places. The vast majority of people were in support of these mandates. That's what it felt like. And that's because we have a new form of democracy. And the new form of democracy is the loudest person gets more votes. Yep. So, and, 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 and I saw this because the day that the mask mandate was struck down in the United States, the day that that happened, 90% of people unmasked, which suggests to me that it was only ever 10% of the people that were in for favor of the forced mandates. Again, I'm not coming on one side or the other. I, I, I believe in freedom. I think you have the right to choose whether to wear a mask or not. And as a business owner, you have the right to choose whether people come into your business and wear a mask or not. That's fine with me. I'm just talking about this new form of democracy. If you scream louder, you're, you have more votes. If you're a victim, you have more votes. If you, if you, if you are injured, you have more votes. And so all of a sudden we're, we're in a place where it's hard to have real discourse. Yes, that, that is abundantly true. And, uh, but I also remind myself every day, you know, I took a, I took a stroll in, in nature this morning to remind myself of that because it's easy to get stuck in the platform. You know, going into Twitter is like walking into a virtual battleground, uh, and you go outside and you just see human beings walking through the street, you know, just, just doing their thing. And it's like, Oh, hang on a minute. This is Twitter. Isn't Twitter isn't actual life, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's important to ground ourselves because our perception of reality is shaped by our digital experience more and more. So, and I think that we've become more and more fragmented as a society. We're not, we're not spending as, as much time in the kind of public space or the town square. Well, we were ordered not to as well. <laughs> well, yes, it doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah. Literally made illegal and every time they say that out loud i i find this a knot growing inside me but i think that's part of the problem as well you know the the, the, the space to actually connect face to face where you know if, if if you behave like people some people do on twitter you're going to get a knock in the face if you speak like that to someone in person you know we don't have the same barrier you know the the, the, the decorum that comes with face-to-face -face engagement and the ability to read one's body language and to actually be more respectful. So I, I do find that the, 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 the digitization of our lives has actually worsened the problem. And in fact, I, I would even speculate that whether the digital platforms have actually created some of this cultural fragility. No question about it. I mean, it, 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 take a look at normal human discourse in a bar, then take a look at human discourse in cars, and then take a look at human discourse online, and you can see a trend line. And the trend line is, in a bar, if you haven't had that many drinks, you are unlikely to say something that's going to get you punched in the face. You, you, you govern yourself. You govern yourself because there could be legitimate consequences to you. Now you get in a car and you have the anonymity of your metal shell and all of a sudden road rage, which is at least the 10 years I lived in the UK, it seemed like it might be the national sport. I mean, it, it was a real like, and of course that you've got the anonymity, you're in your car, you, you've got the distance. So the consequence to you of yelling abuse at somebody is significantly lower. And then let's draw that out to social media. On social media, people not only don't avoid the things that would get you punched in the face, it's like they feel proud to say them. And so it, it, that, that the further apart, the further apart we are dragged from each other, the more, uh, you know, aggressive we seem to become because no consequence yes yeah um uh, you know and how we heal that is a big big question because you you, you know the, 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 there is an emergent culture here that that is 
following that trajectory even further with the likes of the metaverse. I'll, I'll tell you, I actually think in the case of social media, one of the ways you fix it is you just let it be. And and I, this is a difficult thing, but one of the one of the things about free speech that I think is really fascinating is like free speech is not simply the right for you to say what you want to say and 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 share your views or what have you. Free speech is the is the opportunity for the rest of us to find out who you are. So, so if we start governing free speech, if we start saying, well, I don't want that guy to say his hateful things. Now, listen, uh, anybody inciting violence that actually calling for act, you know, violence against people, I'm, I'm all for governing that. But, but when we start saying that thing was offensive, that thing was hurtful, we don't want them to say that on our platform. What's interesting is, is that you are now robbing people of the opportunity of finding out who that person is. So I suspect that two things we could do to massively improve social media eliminate anonymous accounts like this or not eliminate them. But, but for example, in a case like Twitter, when, when somebody's actually a real human being, approve the account, prove that it's a real human being. They've paid with their credit card. They're a real human being. Real human beings are much less likely to be aggressive and nasty. And then at the same time, also don't try to govern what they're saying, let the truth shine. And then we find out that, you know, that we, we find out who Ricky Gervais really is, which he shows us all the time. Yes, yes, no, I, I agree. Well, we, we, we've come on to talk about freedom, which is an interesting one in the, in, in the context of the second point that you made around being aware of the chessboard and the chess masters. And that's, I, I agree for me, has been a large part of my work for the last year or so. Um, and there's been, there's plenty we could say on in the context of the pandemic around Big Pharma, and I give you the space to do that, but but also in 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 recognition of the intent of our conversation today to talk about food freedom, you know, what, what shocks me is having become in, up close and personal with the, the challenges with Big Pharma, its, its role in influence over academia, institutions, governments, media, it's prolific, but it, it comes as no surprise to discover the same is true pretty much of every big industry and big agriculture, big food, uh, I mentioned to you that I spoke to Paul Wheaton on the podcast and he was talking about the exact same things, the the capture of institutions when it comes to, you know, the Montesanos sponsoring the education system uh, through to the media outlets and how much is spent on lobbying. And the parallels are just quite frankly shocking. The trouble is all of that stuff's true. The trouble is that it's gotten to the point where it's a little like um, disengaged. It's a little yes. unemotional. It's, it's not, what I think is the more people will see specific examples of how it might be affecting them. So here's one that I noticed that I can't believe is not like talked about everywhere, but we all watched as Elon Musk attempted to acquire more and more and more and more and more of Twitter. And he eventually became the largest shareholder of Twitter. And of course the board tried to prevent him from his acquisition and you know, all that stuff, right? Here's the part that most people weren't discussing. Do you know who the largest shareholder of Twitter was prior to Elon Musk's buying spree? Oh, it was either Vanguard or BlackRock. I can't remember which one. It was Vanguard. Yeah. It was Vanguard. And of course, Vanguard is the single largest shareholder of Pfizer. And of course, what was the biggest thing being censored on Twitter was anything that was questioning. And listen, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm just saying we have the right to question. Yeah. <laughs> like We have the right to question. So when you see that type of thing, like you know, Elon's coming along to say, look, we should be able to say what we want on Twitter. And it's being blocked ultimately by a big pharmaceutical company. That's, that stuff is really frightening. And then, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about the UK and food, right? Since I'm all into food. I saw in the Daily Mail um, two articles about a year apart from each other. One article said eggs cause 
diabetes. Eating two eggs a day increases your risk of developing diabetes. And then the other article said eating two eggs a day like protected you from diabetes. And that just uh, like we see stuff like that all the time. So now that that spurred me. I said, you know what? I'm going to div- dig deeper. I'm going to dig deeper into the into the article. How is it that because I know eggs are not causing diabetes. So I, I just I need it. At least I feel like I know that. So I'm going to go in. So here's what I find. I go find the actual study. Now, here's how it seems like a lot of people are consuming the media. There is a there's an entire section of people who read only the headline and they feel informed. <laughs> they feel very <laughs> well informed. I read the headline. I feel informed. Then there's another level of people, real props to them. They read the actual article. Not bad. Now they think they know more. But then there's another level, and that is where you go read the study, the mm-hmm. actual study. Or you go and read other press accounts of that study in other countries so you see the way it's been you know, dealt with. And so here's, here's what the study said. The study said, weirdly, first of all, it said that the consumption of eggs seemed to be correlated with an increase in blood sugar. That doesn't make sense, but that's what they said. Okay. But- but the study said that it never said anything about diabetes. That was the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail extrapolated an increase in blood sugar as diabetes. Okay, so that we know the press lies. So fine. But then, then it goes a step further. The study goes deeper, and it says that it was actually only women that this happened in. Weirdly, it didn't happen to men. It only happened to women. The Daily Mail didn't mention that fact, but the study mentions that fact. Then you go deeper into the study, and here's what the study says. The women in the study, it was in China, the women in the study did not like eating eggs, so they consumed their eggs as baked goods, pancakes, muffins, and what have you. And that caused an increase in their blood sugar. And from that, the Daily Mail has told us that eggs cause, I mean, we, we, the press and the social media and all that stuff is, is not only leading to our like general ignorance, but it's making us think we know things that are absolutely wrong. Yes. I mean, I, I, there's countless examples from the, the pandemic, but that that three kind of level analogy is so important. Headline, article, study. And then there's a fourth layer, actually, is then, then you look at the quality of the study, how it's constructed, you know, the Who price. paid got, for it? Yeah, yeah, the five layers, you know, and all of a, all, all of a sudden, you know, we're in this 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 soup which is very difficult to, to my, my new my new favorite expression sponsored by the pandemic i i i, I you know but it said <laughs> anybody who says follow the money is actually or sorry anybody who says follow the science is actually saying follow the money yes that's where we are today well exactly and that's that's my point around the chessboard because it's it's it's, it's but the challenge here uh, eric is that you're right about the mainstream media but we've also got the, the exact same problem within the alternative media where there is greater freedom but there is even less regulation it's kind of the wild west and and so the discernment is put upon the individual who may not have any background domain expertise they may not have any uh kind of training and critical thought and evaluation how to see through their own biases so we've then got this one hand we're being hugely influenced by mainstream media because this legacy trust there but then we've got these alternative sources that, 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 that proliferate a whole range of other and offer a whole range of other problems. So we're kind of in this real sense-making mess. So to, to find out what is truthful or factual is incredibly difficult. Factual, again, has become subjective. This postmodernist kind of uh, era that we live in where it's, it's, it's how we feel about something rather than the actual underlying truth. Uh, 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 so it's just this whole melting pot. Uh, and, and So how do we make sense of the world? In any context, whether it's food, science, pharmaceuticals, medicine, education, what's, you know, what's the way forward here, Eric? You know, I, it's, it's, 
I think that this actually comes back to maybe a little bit with what I started with, and that is that um, if, if, if you are a, a rat, you know, that's, that's on, a sh on a ship, um, I, I don't think that you really can be bothered so much with what the captain and the crew are up to. You really just have to eke out the very best life you can on that ship. Mm. And that, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we're at, is that we're, we're on this space rock flipping through eternity uh, at 65,000 miles an hour, and we've got some people in power positions, and, and, and we have to find this balance between um, living our, our best possible human experience and not getting caught up in all that other rubbish, but then also figuring out where the thresholds are. And, and I think that that is something that happened in the pandemic, is that the threshold that other countries have experienced. I mean, look, the, the people of South Africa, uh, the people of the Soviet Union, East Germany, they have experienced government overreach. They've experienced that and they understand it. But most of us had never seen that except in a movie or something. And now we've seen that happening. And so I, I think we're now at a point where all these rats living on the ship might need to get together <laughs> and they <laughs> have a chat with the captain. Yes. You know, they, they, something needs to change. And that's a tough thing because you actually put your quality of life at risk by standing up to those powers that be. Mm. You, you, you decide you want to do a big protest in Canada and you decide that maybe the government has overreached. Uh, and so you start to protest. Only the leader of the country brands you all as misogynists and rapists, despite that being completely incorrect. I mean, I'm sure there were a few misogynists and rapists, just like I'm sure there are in parliament. But, <laughs> but when he brands the whole bunch of them that way, then he is using identity politics to vilify those people. It's one of the most, no, no world leader of a truly free country should ever deploy something like that. I, I, I mean, Hillary Clinton learned that lesson by calling a bunch of people deplorables. Look, that, that destroyed her. Yes. You, you, when you try to, to name a group of people like that, and it's disgusting. So we're, we're, we're at a place now where those people who simply wanted to express their, their opinions and express their right to protest and what have you got branded as criminals and racists and, and, and many of them had their bank accounts frozen. Like, that's Canada. Yes. yes, so yes. I think the, the rats might need to take the ship. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're asking each other, does anyone know how to sail this thing? Or, <laughs> it's, that, but that's where we're at, you know. It's it's right. But 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 this brings me on to an interesting point in the context of freedom and 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 uh, I, I listened to one of your talks actually uh, around the concept of uh, food freedom and the food revolution, and you focused on personal responsibility and you know what, what actions we can take in order to take better care of our health, and that that historically has been the paradigm that I've personally lived by because I there's so much I've, I've said that I. I can't control outside of myself, but over the last couple of years and being involved for the first time in activism, protesting at, at, at a level, at a significant level, I've realized that people power when they, the rats get together, if you will, as, and hopefully we can't make the direct comparison between humans and rats in that way. I feel a little uncomfortable using this analogy now, but, but when, <laughs> when, the, when the people get together, they can, they can affect change. And I think it's the illusion of, that you know, our personal power is limited to ourselves, but, but actually, when it in combined with others, we can create change. And in the in the case of the food industry, you know, I'm looking at the same problem that we talked about in the pharmaceutical industry. Fifteen trillion in the U.S. spent in lobbying. Fifteen trillion. <laughs> Fifteen trillion. I mean, that... by the way, 
I think it was in the British Journal of Medicine. I, I, I could be corrected on this, but I think it was a, in, a published in the British Journal of Medicine is that a study was done that was comparing the relative spend on pharmaceutical marketing, which includes lobbying, of course, mm -hmm. um, relative to the efficacy of any given pharmaceutical treatment, there is an inverse relationship. So the more money that the pharmaceutical company is spending on marketing the drug, the less effective the drug is. So that's a really important thing. It's a very important thing to realize that they know which drugs are not working and they put the marketing money into those drugs because the ones that are working don't need to be marketed because people tell each other. Yes. So, you know, we, we, and, and there's another thing about this that, that kind of marries these two conversations, this food revolution and the, you know, weird socio geopolitical crap that we're going through at the moment. Slavery of various kinds has been going on for a long time. And of course, I can't compare anything of what's happening today to the true depths of what was going on um, during slavery. The point is that people in power have been attempting to, to some degree, enslave or control their populations forever. Some people did it through direct force. If you don't do the work, you're going to get whipped. And uh, then, then the next level was to say, well, as long as you work this land well enough and give me a per percentage of your sheep, you can continue to work the land. Very common in your country, that, that method was used very heavily. And, and then there are, you know, so controlling food and controlling land access and all these things has been a way of controlling the population. But the other thing is, one another way to control the population is make sure that they're, you know, make sure that they're not awake, that they're not really aware of what's going on around them, and to make sure that they're kind of numb. And and so if, if we take a look at the the level of education in 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 countries that are supposed to be like leading countries around the world, you you walk the streets of the United States and ask some basic questions like, what's the largest city in America? And they will some of them will answer Asia, like like. <laughs> What is going on? And, and what I'm suggesting is, is that dumbing down the education, dumbing down the food supply, dumbing down the nutrition, getting people more and more. I mean, we're at a place now where a significant percentage of children over the course of their 12 years of education will end up on behavior modification drugs. It, 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 is, it is ridiculous how high that has become. And so it, it, it's almost as if they really don't want us thinking for ourselves. Yeah, I, I think both of those problems you outlined are, are problematic. And, uh, you know, the kind of feudalism that, you know, many nations were once, once built upon, we're we kind of seeing this neo-feudalism in the sense that everything is on this control path. It's, it's, we, we're seeing this uh, climate of alarmism, catast catastrophization, creating real fear and uncertainty, uh, and people are tackling that with, with, with rules, control, uh, ownership over platforms and uh, we, we've got that playing out you know those that kind of study the material that come out of the world economic forum have seen this kind of very much you'll own nothing and be happy type mentality but you we'll know, build back better <laughs> yes we'll build back better as long as we the central group of people own everything so that we can rent you it all back um <laughs> um I mean, I laugh about it. My audience get a bit annoyed when I laugh about it. But you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to have a sense of humor about these things because it's ludicrous. But uh, the, the 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 purpose of this conversation is really how we claim our sovereignty. And you know, we we came together to talk about it in the, in the context of food. But I think I think I think our, our background discussion here that we've had in, in terms of the view on what's happened over the last couple of years since you last spoke is an important one in the context of food because. It's another one. You, you, you know, you've shared the example how people make their decisions, what they see in the media. A headline tells them this, uh, and, and then we see regula regulation that ultimately puts the, 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 the burden on the consumer rather than the producer. 
it's an absolute minefield. We don't know who to trust. We don't know who to where to turn. Yet, meanwhile, people are getting sicker. Uh, you know, I, I just put up a poll in advance of this episode, and I, I'm shocked at the results actually so far. I asked, did, did you learn anything about how to improve your health or reduce the burden of disease from the government or mainstream media in the last two years? And I expected it to be a blank, like 99%, 100% no. Seven percent of people have said yes. I mean, which country are you living in? You know, I want to know. Tell me where are you living? Because I can tell you one of them. Yeah. I can tell you one of them. This is obviously something I've dug into. I've really wanted to. I, I have spoken to people in government. I've said, you guys have the single biggest opportunity to turn around diabetes, ob obesity, and the food industry right now. Because by March and April of 2020, the statistics were clear that lifestyle disease, that food was the single biggest influence on COVID outcomes. It gave every government in the world the, the full authority, the, an easy mandate to change this. In fact, I was approached by a parliamentary uh, consultant who said, listen, Boris has decided that he's going to go, you know, wage this war on obesity and I can get you in front of him. Can you draft a letter that describes what, what, you know, what we can do and how we can take care of this? So we did this. We worked with our team. We worked with a, a senator in Canada who was supporting us on this. We wrote it and we got a note that the note was on Boris's desk. And about a week later, he announced that he was going to bicycle his fat away. We know that that is not how weight loss works. The science is absolutely clear that that is not how weight loss works. But he picked up what is ultimately a soft drink industry bit of propaganda. And that is that if you just burn a few more calories, it'll all be fine. And, and, and they, didn't, they didn't take this up. But in all of my research, digging around, trying to find out what countries were doing, I weirdly found myself looking at a bunch of uh, back office government documents from Kenya uh, through <laughs> an opening on one of their websites. So I don't think it was intended for public consumption, but there I was. And in Kenya, they had a dietary guidelines for mitigating COVID uh, severity. And it was actually pretty good. So, and they, and they were like sending it out to their doctors. Like it, the, the doc, the document discussed what their food guidelines were and how they wanted to deploy them in the country. And as far as I know, that is the only country that had an active messaging about improve your lifestyle and diet in order to provide a level of defense against COVID. And by the way, Kenya wasn't like a lot of the other countries that were quite anti-vax. Kenya actually has a vaccine mandate required to get in the country. They're, they, they weren't saying do this instead. They were saying the ultimate situation is you take advantage of all the defenses available to you. Mm, I think the, um, yeah, the various approaches is interesting to un unpack. I mean, my wife is a, a client in India and she said where she was based in India, the, the government, well, they were giving access to a drug that I can't mention on this interview because it begins with the letter I and ends in mectin. But if we say it out loud, I'll get censored again. And they uh, get very <laughs> sensitive about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been my first channel once we hit 5 million views was deplatformed for mentioning that word too many times. So we can't say that, but they, they were giving it away in India uh, as treatment. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, but they were also it was being prescribed here in the Dominican Republic as well. Was it? Okay. Uh, they, yeah. But they, they were also, what was interesting, they, they were giving away not smoothies, but uh, veg, vegetable based um, juices. They were giving away herbs, spices, anti inflammatory. They were giving away natural products to their citizens. And you know, that to me was a really proactive. Thing because think how much how much money has been spent on quote unquote COVID measures in the last two years. I mean, it's billions in the UK alone, and how much produce you could have given away, healthy produce that you could have given away to your citizens to help them improve their health. It, it's clear that we have the money to spend when we need to. The money tree is is available, uh, but we haven't been able to shake that money tree to to actually provide anything of of, of merit to to citizens. 
I mean, imagine if we'd spent the last two years giving away vegetables and, you know, fresh ginger, garlic uh, and, and various different things that can actually support your immune system, your, your events, you know, building, giving access to, uh, you know, what was it, eat out. We had a scheme in the UK called Eat Out to Help Out, you know, in, 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 which, which was all about getting the, the hospitality industry back on their feet because it got decimated. Well, and plus they, you had you had fast food chains in America giving <laughs> away donuts if you went for the vaccine. I mean, I, I hello, hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's there, like they're just making fun of us. There was no workout to help out there, was there? There's no program to, you know, no. uh, so, so it's all backwards to me, the whole thing. Um, and here we are. Yeah, they're talking about pandemic preparedness plans for the next one. And yet still none of the plans <laughs> revolve around improving the systemic health of citizens. Not one. I don't see it anyway. No. It's about how do we how do we speed up the time it takes to make new drugs and vaccines? It's not about how do we speed up the pursuit of human health, and what what can we do to actually transform uh, the fragile culture and citizens that we have to build physically, mentally, emotionally strong people? No, <laughs> let's build a dependency system that we can profit from for ad infinitum, and let's let's create products that we can actually put on subscription that you need every two months. <laughs> I saw Pfizer uh, got an FDA approval recently, um, as I've recently had to come to reading glasses at times. Uh, uh, Pfizer um, released a, um, a statement. They, they got FDA approval for an eye drop and the eye drop uh, softens the lens. And so you don't need reading glasses. You, you get your reading vision back. Um, but the drop needs to be taken. It lasts for about eight hours. The drop has to be taken like once a day to give you eight hours of clear vision. My question is, I wonder how many millions of dollars they spent making it a one a day. Cause you've mm. got to figure they could have found a permanent solution. Mm. Like I, 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 and, and I know that sounds like I may as well put my tinfoil hat on, but I don't think it's an unreasonable proposition. They are a profit driven company. And, and, and by the way, we can't get, I'm not saying there's some evil person at, at Pfizer. We, it's, it's just, that's how capitalism works relative to healthcare. You know, I'm a big fan of capitalism, except when it comes to food production, and healthcare, and for that matter, military spending. Yes, well, that's a, yeah. I mean, you and I have both been in business for you know, you've been in you've been around slightly longer than I have, and have a, have, a, have a much uh, broader and faster career in business. But I, I've been the same, you know, a free market advocate of capitalism. But now I'm like, okay, where's the regulation? <laughs> you know, I can't believe myself using the R word as much as avoiding saying the I word because. It's, but it's not. It's not the entrepreneur that I want to restrain. It's it's the, the massive corporate. You know, government overreach is one thing, but corporate overreach into public life through governance is the big thing for me. Here, here's a an interesting thing about diabetes. Um, so, uh, and it, and it takes place. It starts in the UK and it takes place a little bit in Canada. So, um, the the uh, the. the in the UK, there was a gentleman who was vastly overweight in the late 1800s. And um, he, he basically, you know, it, and it was really rare. Uh, um, it was really rare to be that overweight back then. Very rare to be obese. So he went to his doctor and he says to his doctor, like, I got to do something about this. And his doctor says to him that you're, 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 you're just got to make these changes to your diet. It was really simple. He just says, do this. And largely what he did is he, he put him on a sort of keto Atkins type of thing. And he, and, and the guy lost all the weight. And then he wrote a book about it. He wrote a book about it and he, and it was prolific. It was doing very well. The book was going out and he donated all the profits 
because he felt like that message needed to get to the world. He, he felt a social responsibility. His last name was Banting, and he had to get, it, he had to get his message out to the world. Now, uh, Banting lived to a, a ripe old age, and some years after he died, a new Banting was born in Canada. They were distantly related. And this Banting was a very fascinating guy, and he, he got himself in a lot of trouble with the Canadian government one day because he was up in the north of Canada, and he was evaluating what was going on with the fur trade and what was happening with the with the you know original Canadian people and 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 what the Hudson's Bay Company was doing to them with refined sugar and all that garbage that was happening. And he made a statement off the record to a reporter on a train saying that, well, we're basically killing these people with with European foods. We're, we're killing them with sugar and what have you. And he got in a lot of trouble for that. But, you know, he picked his career back up and went in a different way. And then he was the guy who discovered exogenous insulin. He figured out how to extract, how to stimulate the production of insulin initially from dog pancreases. And then they figured out other ways of doing it. And of course, this was a huge thing because at that point in time, there was a group of people that had type one diabetes and they're insulin dependent. If you didn't have insulin, you basically couldn't live. So he had developed something that was going to give all these people the opportunity to actually live. And he felt as though that thing was a fundamental human right and it needed to be there for everybody. And so he sold the patent to the University of Toronto for $1, for $1. I don't know what happened after that. But what I can tell you is that type two diabetes is now 95% of all diabetes. Never would have needed to happen if the first Banting's book had made its way around the world into education systems and what have you. Never would have needed to happen if the original food pyramid was published and not, not ripped apart by the USDA. It, it, it never needed to happen, but it happened. Now, check this out economically, because it's tough. It's tough sometimes to think about numbers, right? A US government agency did an evaluation of Obamacare. Um, this is not a political statement about Obamacare. It's just simply saying that this agency determined that Obamacare was going to save the U.S. government about $10 billion a year. Now, a billion is a lot of money. People don't know. They don't understand. People often talk about the millionaires and billionaires. Let's just break that down for a minute. To spend a million dollars in a year requires spending about $80,000 a month. If you spend $80,000 a month, you can burn through a million dollars in a year. To burn through a billion dollars a year, you'd have to do that for a thousand years. Mm. So just, just to put what a billion really means, and Obamacare was going to save the American government $10 billion a year, which sounds like a huge amount of money until you find out that diabetes is costing the American government over $300 billion a year. And the average American is spending over $1,000 a, a year on pharmaceutical interventions, and most of which are unnecessary if our food system had not been hijacked if, 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 our, if the pharmaceutical system and the medical system hadn't been hijacked. What do, we, what do we do? We get back to that question of, you know, you got the rodents on the ship. Do they live their own life or do they take the ship? Well, it starts with you take care of your own life. Because if you're going to have the power to speak, if you're going to have the power to influence, if you're going to have the power economically to make a difference, you have to take care of yourself first. You got to put your own oxygen mask on before you. And the problem for most people is they go to the second one first. They, they start Googling and they start conspiracy theorizing, what have you, but they haven't even, but they're in debt. They haven't paid off. They're, they're enslaved to the population. They're, they're, they, they, they don't have the power to make a change. So the first thing that we have to do is get our own relationship with food, right? Our own relationship with our economics, right? Our own relationship with pharmaceuticals, right? Then, then we can have an influence. Then we can do something about this. Yeah, I agree. I'm one of my recent guests, Tesla, Dr. Tesla, already said, you know, the, the, the biggest act of uh, uh, personal revolution that you can take, I forget the specific quote, but she said something very similar in the sense that the biggest action you can take right now is to revolutionize the healthcare system is to take control of your own health. Yeah, so, yeah uh, absolutely. Um, uh, and, I, and I agree with that. And I think that that 
I, I think the, there's almost a lost art of personal responsibility in, in the sense that, you, you know, we, we, we constantly can outsource our decisions and that's part of the problem that gives rise to, to what we're seeing. Um, but then also some of the problems we've already talked about when you open a newspaper day one, it says two eggs is going to give you diabetes day two. It says it's going to help cure it. Um, so people are stuck and looking, you know, find, finding the old adage of, you know, drowning in information and starving for wisdom. There's, we are, we are starving for wisdom. Principles can solve a lot of that. Yes. And, and, and what I mean by that is that, um, imagine that you got yourself an exotic pet. You, 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 somebody handed you this exotic pet, you had to care for it. Would you start Googling PubMed and Harvard Medical Sciences to try to figure out what to feed your pet? No, <laughs> you would dial into the big cat diaries or whatever pet it was, you know, made right there, channel four, not far away from you, I think, but you'd dial right into the Discovery Channel or Nat Geo or something like that. And you'd watch a two hour special about your pet. And now you would know how to feed your pet. You would have a very good idea about what that pet, pet's lifestyle is. And that would give you a principle. So now when somebody else came along and said, well, you got to give your pet this special pet food made by Nabisco. You'd be like, you know, I never saw them eating that during the special. I don't think they need that. You would, you would have a principle that would stop the misinformation at the gates. All right. So how does that apply to humans? Well, the way it applies to humans is we absolutely and with certainty know what sapiens and pre-sapiens have been eating for hundreds and th of thousands of years. We know that. So I would offer this principle. Any food science that contradicts or disagrees with evolutionary biology must be considered suspect at the very least. And that's, that's how you solve it. So now you open up the Daily Mail and the Daily Mail says, oh, look, eating eggs causes diabetes. And go, well, we know humans have been eating eggs for like millions of years <laughs> and diabetes has only exploded recently. So probably rubbish. <laughs> yes. Principles. Yes. Principles are what save us. Yes, no, I absolutely agree. I, I, but here, well, here's the challenge. You know, you, you, the example that you use, those documentaries, those films that, that help us learn and become educated are, are, are under threat. You know, the, 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 the platforms that we use to educate ourselves are captured as much as the mainstream media. Yeah. So, so it, 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 to, to me, the, the uprising, the food revolution in this particular context is required and we have to be willing to take bold action, uh, to, to, to reclaim our health sovereignty, our health freedom, our food freedom. And let's make that really practical then. Like, it, let's make it really practical. This is the, the simplest show of activism, activism is this understanding. If you buy it, they will make more of it. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the, the, the core principle of food activism, activism. If you buy something, they will make more of it. So you go to the store and you buy say Heinz ketchup. Well, the first thing you'd probably want to do before buying it is you want to look on the label and then you'd find out that it's basically just candied tomatoes. It's just sugar. It's, it's just sugar. So then you take a look and go, well, maybe there's a more responsible version. Of, if I insist on having ketchup, maybe there's a more responsible version of this than I can have. If you do not buy the sugar laden version, they will stop making it. And, and, and th that is, that's how it begins. That's, that's how it starts. And we've seen that at WildFit. We've seen it happen. Like, and, and, you know, we've only had something like 50,000 people do our program. When I say only, that's a lot of people, but compared to how many people we're going to reach, it's a, it's a small number. But even within that pool of 50,000, we, we, here's one of my favorite stories. A woman contacts us. She says, you know what? I was going to my local butcher 
And, uh, you know, she, she chooses to eat meat. So she was going to her local butcher and she told the butcher, I would like you to make sausages for me that don't have any syrup or honey or sugar in them. He said, no problem. They made her a custom order. And about once a week, she'd come in and pick up her custom order. She called one day to confirm her custom order. And the guy says, um, yeah, we're not doing your customer custom order anymore. So just, just come on down. She's confused. We're not doing it anymore, but come on down anyway. So she gets down there. And he, and, he go, and he just takes sausages right out of the normal counter and goes, here you go. Wait, wait, wait. What about my custom order? She go, he says, it's all your custom order now. What? He says, well, we had another one of these wild fit people call us and ask us to remove the syrup and stuff from the thing. And we're like, this is weird. And then we started asking around why we add it in the first place. And the only reason we added it is because our daddy added it. And we asked our daddy why he added it. And he said, because our granddaddy added it. And, you know, it's just, okay. But back then they were adding like pure raw sugar and honey and now we're adding corn syrup so we've made some changes but now we've decided it doesn't need a sweetener at all and we're just not doing that anymore we made a batch for you we tried them we like them it's done that butcher no longer sweetens their sausages and 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 those those are the the fronts that we have to fight we if you go into a whole foods if you go into a sainsbury's you go into safeway and you don't buy something you're 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 on the step to them not making it anymore but yeah, I, I concur with that. That's so powerful. And I also think there's a, as part of this kind of food revolution, there's this increasing um, trend towards localization, um, you know, local suppliers where you have the opportunity to actually uh, exert people power, but but also people who are passionate about building those types of uh, food supplies, those types of uh, natural products are, are growing. And I think that's, that to me. They're growing, but it's a, it's a, it's a fight. And I can't name names here. But I can say that I met with the team of one of the most prominent health celebrity advocates in the UK. I can't say who this person might be. What I can tell you, though, is that a large soft drink company that I also can't name from Atlanta, Georgia, offered this celebrity a million dollars in cash to stop talking about sugar. A million dollars cash. Stop talking about sugar. Of course, he didn't take the money and he still talks about sugar. Props to him. Good move. Yeah. Well, I, so here's the other dimension I'd like to explore. And this is where I think things get interesting. And, I, you know, your work in the kind of personal development and mindset space here would be interesting to draw upon. Is that once someone has made the decision to live a healthy life and they start looking for those products, they inevitably will find them. And that will help with that boycott process. But the other part is here, and I was speaking to a... Um, an expert in human behavior in a different context on the show, but he, he, he spoke about needs and wants and how the, and let's take the pharmaceuticals, for instance, people, people, people have been afraid of, a, of an external pathogen. Therefore they've been offered this opportunity to protect themselves by taking a, a vaccine, but then you need a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth. And the, the, despite how many vaccines people are having, they still don't feel safe. They're still doing all the protective measures, extracting themselves from society so they're on this cycle of, 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 of once they want to take protective measures, but their need is never being met. And we, we've got this almost everywhere now because advertisers, marketers know how to, 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 to incite a want, even if it's not an underlying need. But not only that, in the case of food with sugar, you know, it generates addictive behaviors. So the idea of retracting, you, you, you know, the, the question I'm coming towards is how do we break through that addictive behavior, that cycle, and even come back to consciousness where it's a case of recognizing our impulses that have been generated through prior behavior, but also through those intense advertising points, which which are dominating our 
screens, uh, you know, the, the supermarket aisles, you know, you're bombarded breaking through that. I think let's handle that in, in two parts. The first part is I'm sure you're familiar with Darren Brown. Yes. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure most of your, because you guys are, I don't know if a lot of your listeners in the UK, but like these days, Darren Brown's fairly well known around the world. And we can watch Darren Brown conduct a special where he basically puts thoughts into people's head. He gets them to come up with certain answers. He's doing very, very interesting mentalist type work. What a lot of people don't realize is that the food manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies hire people just as powerful, just not famous, um, as Darren Brown at doing those things. So as a good example, the cigarette industry was really struggling to get women to smoke. They just couldn't do it. All the men were smoking and women didn't want it because women are more uh, they're more reluctant to do dirty things, right? Like to do smelly, yucky things. They're more sensitive to that stuff. So women didn't like the idea of smoking and they were having a really hard time getting them to smoke. So the tobacco industry went and hired a guy whose work was used by Nazi Germany. Not, he didn't want it to be used, but it was used by Nazi Germany relative to crowd control. And, and he was a very smart guy. And they hired him and said, you know, what, how can we get women to smoke? And he goes, well, what's going on in America? for women right now, what's important to women. And they said, well, you know, the suffrage movement, they want the vote and they want more power and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, well, if you can show them that cigarettes will get them those things, then they'll buy cigarettes. And that whole conversation gave way to the idea of uh, Virginia Slim's campaign, you've come a long way, baby. And there's a photograph of, a, of a, a woman in her men's jeans and a white shirt with grease on her face and a, you know, she's obviously working on a car and she's showing her liberated, her, liberated thing. And the next thing you know, women are smoking all over the place. They're smoking all over the place. And that one campaign, that one idea, that one consulting conversation killed millions of people. And, and what we have to recognize is that, that that's not an isolated circumstance. The food industry is doing this to us all the time. Uh, your, 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 your team is playing, uh, I guess, football in, in the UK and your team loses. Well, the advertising has been like, well, if you want to pick, you know, pick your team up and you want to cheer them up and you want to, you want to bring them to, you know, wherever you want to bring them to TGI Fridays, right? You want to bring them to McDonald's. You want to take them out to for pizza. So now the team gets taken out for pizza and, and, and they, you know, they, 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 they commiserate and then they, they turn it into a party. And the next thing you know, every one of those children has learned that every time I feel like I've had a shitty day, I just got to go get pizza. And that's very smart marketing. It's incredibly smart marketing. And it's why when you're now 45 years old and you're driving down and you had a shitty day at work, you just feel a compulsion for pizza. You think it's because you like pizza. No, it's because pizza was linked to this feeling. So we have to recognize that they are using the most advanced neurolinguistics, the most advanced hypnotic techniques. They're using the most advanced psychological techniques to hijack our holidays, to hijack our emotions and take away our choice. That's what they're doing. So now what do we do about that? Well, I think the first thing that we do about that is, um, is that we start to learn some of those tricks, that we start to understand some of those tricks. Like I, I'll bet you there's at least one person listening to this podcast at the end of it, they go, oh my God, I do that. I have a bad day at work and I go get pizza and oh my God. And I, by sharing that with them, I've just given them a moment. We call it a Frankel moment named after Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel says between stimulus and response, there is a moment where you determine your personal liberty as a human being. And my job often in life is to give people Frankel moments. I just want to, I just want to create a moment of consciousness before you call for the pizza. So you can know why you're calling for the pizza. And you know what? A number of the people that are watching your podcast right now will not order the pizza because we had this conversation. 
And that's, that's how we start. We have, we start with them getting awareness of how they're being manipulated about it. And then, and then the next part is we teach people really advance what in Harry Potter language, what we might call defense against the dark arts. How do you protect yourself from the food industry? How do you protect yourself? So, you know, um, here's a reverse example of the pizza situation. Um, this happened to me quite recently. Uh, so it was quite, you know, since, since I work with food psychology, I, since I'm a pioneer in the space of food psychology, I'm embarrassed to admit that this happened to me. But over the holidays last year, I had my girlfriend and her daughters and my daughter and a bunch of family friends. It was all women. It was all like I had, I, I don't know, it was like 12 or 13 girls and women in my house over the holidays. And it was just the house of oxytocin. We had the best time. We, we had fabulous meals. We had so much fun. And then slowly people started heading home. Two people, two people, two people. And then finally I'm left, just my girlfriend and my daughter. Then my girlfriend heads back off to Estonia. And then I'm just me and my daughter. And then my daughter has to go to her mom's house. And it's Sunday and I am rocking it. I'm going to have man day. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like watch violent stuff on the TV. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to walk around naked. It's man day. <laughs> Only here's what really happened. I woke up depressed. I woke up and my house is empty and I was feeling depressed and feeling lonely. And, uh, and I'm just like, I, I'm like, I was so ready for this man day and I don't even want it now. And I'm feeling depressed. And I suddenly think to myself, <gasps> you've got the ingredients to make grace, my favorite smoothie. And by the way, it's a perfectly healthy smoothie, but it's full of sugar. It's full of fat. It's a serious, like, it's a huge dopamine bomb. And, and I, I, I think to myself, you've got the ingredients for grace. And I suddenly think, I feel better. And then I was like, <laughs> hold on, hold on a minute. Any behavior that you reward, you will repeat. If I reward my depression with this dopamine bomb, my body will learn that depression is the path to dopamine. And then my body will trigger depression in order to get that dopamine. And I, 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 I saw that and I was like, okay, I know that's true, but this time I'm gonna have it anyway. No, <laughs> no. And here's what I did is I made a deal with myself. I was pretty angry about the deal, but the deal was the only way you make grace today is if you have a compelling and amazing day. If you have a great day, productive, fun, doesn't, you don't have to get anything done. You just, it either has, you have to feel good about the day at the end of the day. If you feel good about the day at the end of the day, you can have it. And I was so mad that I made that deal because I was depressed. I was like sad. I was like, oh, anyway, I walk outside to go to the beach. I'm sitting on the beach. I make a sandcastle. I'm pissed off with myself making a sandcastle. I, mean, I don't even enjoy this. <laughs> Forcing myself to have fun. I'm a little like a National Lampoon's Vacation. We're going to have fun whether you like it or not. I'm sitting here having fun whether I like it or not. And then a few of my friends come along and they see this huge sandcastle that I built. And they, they're like, holy cow, how, how does that work? And the water's coming in this side. And I'm like, well, I explain all the architecture. And, and this part here was inspired by Petra and Jordan. And it was all... And, and then they're like, that's so cool. And I'm like, yeah, it's really cool. Look over here where we've got Colin the crab moved into this side. And they're like, that's great. And then you want to go get some lunch? And then we go over to the local beach place and we have lunch and we laugh our asses off. And I walk into my house four hours later, having had one of the best days. Then I made grace. Because you want to reward the right behaviors. If you reward a bad day at work with ice cream, you will create more bad days at work and you'll develop obesity, diabetes, or whatever is the consequence of doing that on a regular basis. But if you learn that one trick to reward only your very best days, reward them with better things if you can, but still only reward the best days, you begin to break the spell that the food industry has on us. Mm, incredibly powerful. I, I think that that psychology is so, so powerful. Once we understand how that works and how, you know, the Pavlov's dog effect can, uh, 
you know, we, we can train it in ourselves. And I've learned to do that over the years. And now if I start to feel tired or unwell or sick, I begin to crave specifically broccoli. And I, I get the same kind of salivating, like can't wait to eat it sensation that I would get from things that were previously craved that were not so healthy. And, um, you know, retraining uh, that, that behavior is is so key and um that that for me has been transformational um so uh, you know it, it, I, we've spoken we've spoken about the psychology we've spoken about how people can uh boycott the things that are not so good for themselves uh, we've talked about principles i want to talk a little about the work that you've done over the years with wildfit in particular uh, to give people uh, an idea where they can find grounded principles that is based upon the evolution of human beings. Um, could you talk us through how Wildfield came, Wildfield came about, and what what people can learn if they if they embrace your uh, your project? Yeah, sure. The the, the, the short version is that I, I was having really serious health troubles. Um, I, I was uh, I was overweight, although you wouldn't have said so. I wasn't like fat, as it were, but I I, I definitely was overweight, and I had um, a, a number of serious uh, chronic symptoms that I was living with, like uh, uh, cystic acne that was painful when I smiled and, and terrible sinus and throat infections and horrible uh, digestive problems. And th- I'd lived with them for so long that I no longer even regarded them as illness. I just regarded them as my state of being. And um, and I went off to a, a business seminar by, funny enough, by Tony Robbins. And on the last day of the seminar, he talked a lot about food. And I got curious about that, you know, why he would talk so much about food. And I conducted a little food experiment of my own. Over the next 30 days, I eliminated some things and I added some things. And and uh, I did it through sheer force of willpower, which, for you know, like generally doesn't work. But because I was doing it as an experiment, for some reason, that supported my willpower. And I managed to get through it. And 30 days later, all of my acne was gone. My throat infections were gone. My, my, I had lost 35 pounds or basically two stone. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I had completely transformed my life. And of course, a lot of my friends noticed and they would come to me and go, I want what you're having. Like, how can I do that? And they would see what I was eating and they would try to mimic me a little and I would tell them the rules. But what really was soul destroying for me um, was that, and, and, and it's, I had really considered writing a book at that stage because it had been so, I was like banting. I wanted everybody to know about this. <laughs> And, uh, but the trouble was that, for example, one of my very good friends, a very, very good friend of mine came to me and he was about, I would guess about 80 pounds overweight. And he asked me how I did it. So I showed him and I gave him the constructs and what have you. And he stuck with it for about three weeks or so. And he lost about 30 pounds in that three weeks. And it was amazing. And we all thought that he was, it was going to like, it was going to save his life. Like really, if you're that overweight at, at 22 years old, you're in some serious trouble. And uh, then one night he and I went out for a meal. And uh, we used to order this uh, uh, mud cake uh, at Earl's in Vancouver, mud, some kind of mud, chocolate frosted mud cake bomb or whatever it was. And um, he ordered it. And, and we used to order one and split one. But of course, I'm not, I'm, I don't eat that anymore. I just, and not with willpower anymore. I just didn't want it. But he ordered it and he goes, oh, you got to live. Everything in moderation. And in my head, all I heard was everything in moderation means moderate health. Like <laughs> that's just the way that's going to be. And of course, he put the weight back on and he continued to amass weight and became morbidly obese. And um, what that did for me is initially made me want to change the world, but then it made me feel hopeless about it. And I started doing some research into the diet industry and I found there's no point writing a diet book because diets don't work. They just don't. They're, they just don't work. They work for a tiny enough 
small enough percentage of the population to give hope to the rest of us, but they don't actually work statistically. The average person gains between one and three pounds every time they go on a diet. The average person will do two diets a year. In fact, the average person will do more than that. They'll do, according to a recent article, I think it was in the Telegraph, the average person will do 126 fad diets in their lifetime. And they will stick to each one for only about six weeks. And I just, I, I didn't want to be part of that. So I didn't write a book. But then what happened is I started teaching business. Weirdly, full circle, Tony Robbins, I had gotten to know him and he invited me to come and speak and teach business on his platforms. And so I started having a bunch of people come to me for business training. And those people started asking me, how do I have some more energy? How do I sleep better? How do I? So I started sharing the principles, but again, running into this thing of feeling helpless about it. I'm going to share the principles with you and you're going to go home and order a pizza. Like, I, you know, and that's when I decided to do a deep dive into what we now might call food psychology. It's not something that actually existed before, but I think it's fair to say it exists now. And I started diving deep into what was driving food decisions, what was driving hunger. And I then designed a program that combined all the nutritional anthropology, the, the human evolution of food, the, the truth about nutrition, about food with psychology, with proper food psychology. And I created this 90 day program. And initially it was only for my business clients. But we were the first eight people, like all eight of them got results, statistically unlikely, but also, you know, friends of mine and what have you. So I didn't, I didn't like celebrate that so big. I just, but then the next class was the same. And then the next class, and then, and then a friend of mine, Paul Sheely, an author from the United States, he did the program and he shared it with his clients and like 200 people signed up and the results were outstanding. And we suddenly started getting, we, I, I, we were getting stories of like massive easy, sustainable weight loss. We were getting stories of type two diabetes reversal, inflammation gone. And of course, uh, at that point, Vishen Lakiani, the CEO of, uh, of Mind Valley, did the program and transformed his body. He then did it to all his staff. They did it. <laughs> and, and he wrote to me at one point, he goes, it's really weird. Our, uh, you know, and, and while this doesn't tell people to stop drinking, but, but they do become more conscious of what they're doing. He said at our company functions, our, our alcohol <laughs> way lower. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then he offered to publish um, WildFit and uh, has now helped me to get the message of WildFit out to hundreds of thousands of people. We've had over 50,000 people actually go through the coaching. And uh, the Canadian government recognized me with a medal for the work that we're doing, improving the quality of people's lives. And we're now working with other governments around the world to really do what we can to turn around the obesity and the diabetes uh, um, epidemics. We, we, I'm, this is the work of, of which in my life I am by far the most proud. Oh, incredible. And uh, we've, we've had the URL there on the screen throughout the uh, conversation, getwildfit.com, where people can go and uh, read, read more about the program. Uh, you, can, you, you, you can tell that Eric is deeply passionate about the subject, but uh, when you go and read more, you'll find you know, in this particular conversation, you know, Eric's been on before and we spoke about his in, entire history of uh, his, his experiences that have led to this program uh, and the kind of background in 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 the whole evolutionary process um that, that's that's baked into wildfit so i encourage you to go and check out wildfit.com um that there is so much there to learn and, and and given everything we've spoken about in this episode finding those principles and those practices that are this is sustaining and recognizing that the food revolution food freedom comes from the actions that we take ourselves uh, there's one simple action I would say you can take today is just go check out wildfit, uh, get wildfit.com uh, as a powerful action. Eric, it's a pleasure as always. This has been such a powerful conversation. Uh, freedom fighters in the world fighting for food freedom. In this, in this instance, uh, it's been a really insightful conversation. Uh, really appreciate our time today on the Elevate podcast um, and look, look forward to, to helping more people to get this word out about 
how we can transform our health. So thank you, Eric. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Elevate podcast with me, Dan Aston Gregory, and our special guest today, Eric Edmeads. I come away of this episode with mixed feelings. Firstly, on the basis that once again, we've heard how big industry has a dominant effect over governments and the way we live our lives, but also very hopeful and inspired by some of the messages that Eric shared. And ultimately, I, I come away with a sense of personal responsibility that if if I'm to change my own health, then it's down to me to take those decisions into my own life and apply those principles that Eric spoke about. Now, uh, Eric briefly shared the details of his WildFit program at the end of the episode. WildFit is one of the most well-respected programs on earth when it comes to health, nutrition, fitness. It's helped countless people transform the quality of their health and vitality and indeed their lives. And if you're interested in finding out more about Eric's program, we've actually partnered on a, on a simple offer where you can actually trial the WildFit program for two weeks for just $27. So if you're interested in taking Eric's program for a test ride, checking out some of the content, taking part in some of the classes, then you can visit danastingregory.com forward slash WildFit, where you'll be able to take advantage of that trial offer. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we have the great privilege of bringing Eric back to the Elevate Network. He's going to be joining us on the 6th of July for a private Q&A discussion. So if you'd like to meet with Eric, have your questions answered, then please do join us on Wednesday at the 6th. You can register by joining us inside our private community at weareelevate.org. Join the supporters circle and you'll find all of our uh, upcoming events listed, including our event with Eric Edmeads and indeed our forthcoming event with Matthias Desmet the following week. So it's my hope that we'll see you inside the Elevate Network. It's our change-making platform where we continue to make sense of the world, exchange ideas, and look at different projects and initiatives that can make a difference in the world around us. So if you're not yet a member, do join us at weareelevate.org. And again, if you join our supporters circle, then you can join our discussion with Eric. Thanks again for watching or listening to the Elevate podcast today. My name is Dan Aston Gregory, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode of the show. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye for now. Thank mm-hmm. you.